Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about what we've been up to at the virtual water cooler. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer is Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Oh, <laughs> hello. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were just not even going to bother with you the know, hello. I was like, should I think of something new? And then I realized too much time had gone by. So <laughs> let's just all move on and pretend I didn't do that. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so Peter is away for the next few days. Um, Jacob, who many of our listeners probably know, lives in Texas, um, is sort of in the middle of a disaster zone right now. Texas is, if you've been paying attention to the news, experiencing you know a once in 35 year winter storm and things are very bad there. Um, he is, he and his family are, are safe. Uh, last we heard. So we're, uh, you know, sending good thoughts, good vibes out to him. Uh, and hopefully he'll be back as soon as, uh, he gets power back in his house. So, uh, the show must go on. So let's just dive into what we've been doing. Uh, Brad, you have been away for a while. Um, what's, what's been going on with you? Um, yeah, so this is, going to be a little rough. Um, it's kind of a bummer to start the podcast like this, but um, you know, it's something that's happening in my life that I need to address. Uh, and it's something that will be ongoing um, and is, you know, uh, a big deal. Um, sorry, I'm just... <laughs> um, unfortunately, on January 31st, my dad passed away. Um, it was very unexpected. Um, we had just gotten a big winter storm here in the Midwest and the snow was, uh, super heavy and packed down. And my dad was, uh, snowblowing at my, my parents' house. And, uh, unfortunately it seemed like it was a little too taxing for him. He had, he had taken some breaks while he was doing it. Um, and so, uh, it was, you know, we tried to use our snowblower here at our house and it just kept clogging the snowblower. So it was just, it was really heavy packed snow that was difficult to work through. And after he had finished, um, he had told my mom that he was putting the snowblower away and was coming back in. And 
about 10 or 15 minutes. So had gone by and he hadn't come back in yet. And my mom, um, turned on the light in our backyard and she saw him, um, laying on the ground in the backyard and he wasn't breathing and they tried to resuscitate him and, um, took him to the hospital and continued to try, but they were unable to. And so he, uh, passed away from cardiac arrest. And so it was super shocking and devastating. Um, it's been a rough, uh, couple weeks to say the least. Um, we were not prepared for this, uh, in any way whatsoever. So in addition to the, the, you know, the grieving, uh, just from this absolutely devastating thing that's happened, there's a lot of logistic stuff that we're trying to figure out for my mom, because, uh, my dad was the kind of person that just took care of all the financial stuff because, uh, he was, he's been an accountant for a long time. Um, he, that's what he's he been doing for his job for a while, in addition to being, you know, a, com- a computer guy. Uh, and he was always the kind of person just to take care of stuff to make it easier uh, for my mom and not just for my mom, but for me and my sister too. And so we're just completely in the dark with a lot of the stuff and we're navigating it as best we can. And so um, just figuring out all the financial stuff and what's going, going to happen with all my dad's affairs and what we're going to do uh, with my mom, because there's just, it's a whole complicated thing of, my girlfriend and I are currently living in my grandma's old house um, that my parents were going to move into this summer and they were going to sell their old house. And so now we're currently um, dealing with the aftermath of trying to get the other house cleared out so that my mom can come uh, live over here. And so she'll be staying with us here at the house for a little bit until we um, move out and go find a different place to live. And then my mom's figuring out what she wants to do, whether or not she wants to stay in this house because now it's her by herself and she was intending to live here with my dad. Um, and, uh, further complicating things, uh, which is very stressful is Indiana in their infinite wisdom decided to, um, overhaul the, uh, system for receiving death certificates and put it entirely online at the beginning of the year in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, it did not, uh, go smoothly. So there's currently a delay in getting death certificates. Um, the funeral home, that we have our, our made the arrangements through for, for my dad said that they um, at the time of my dad's passing, they had had 50 families who had had funerals through them. And of those 50 families, only nine of them had received death certificates so far. Wow. Yeah. So it is a complete clusterfuck. And uh, that has made it difficult because without death certificates, we can't do things like get the my dad's life insurance um, and access the uh, accounts that he left behind, like his 401k for work and that kind of thing. And so it's just uh, it has basically you know uh, an even bigger cloud hanging over our heads for all this logistic and practical stuff in addition to just trying to grieve and deal with it. And so needless to say, it is, it's just been a completely life altering world turning, you know, upside down kind of event that um, I know that I'm going to be dealing with for a long time. I mean, the rest of my life on some level with a lot of this stuff, but also just for the foreseeable future with figuring out um, all of this uh, stuff. So um, you know, it's something I'm sure will come up every now and then on here as I talk about things. And, uh, you know, I'm, I will probably make some dark jokes every now and then just to deal with it because that's who I am and that's how I, I need to, uh, confront that. Um, and there's times where it'll probably sound like things are normal and okay, but they probably won't be for a long time. Um, so I'm just doing my best to take it one step at a time try and find some, you know, joy and 
little things, um, trying to watch stuff, trying to do, like be excited about things, but it's needless to say, it's, it's rough and it'll be like that for a while. Um, but I just, uh, I do want to say, I appreciate you guys helping me out, um, so much, uh, picking up the slack while I've been, uh, away for a couple weeks and I just, uh, appreciate everything and everyone who reached out on social media, whether it was Facebook and Twitter after it happened, um, thank you, you know, for your condolences. Thank you for your kind words. Um, and if, you know, anybody out there who, if you have dealt with something like this, if you're dealing with something like this, um, if you, you know, have some advice, I would, would be happy to hear it. Um, my email uh, is one bad omen, O M A N at gmail.com. Um, you know, I'm just kind of just looking for anything and everything just to help, um, hear from people who have gone through this and, uh, I would just like to say too, like, I know it's cliche and uh, a little bit trite, but like, uh, nothing is guaranteed for us, you know, t- tomorrow isn't a guarantee. And so if you have someone that, you know, you love fiercely, um, in your family, whoever it is, um, talk to them as much as you can reach out as much as you can, uh, and just make sure that they know how much you love them. Well, thanks for sharing that, Brad, man. My, my heart breaks for you and, and your family. That's like really, really tough. Um, uh, I would just say, um, sorry. Um, <clears throat> I would say that if you can, uh, keep us in the loop on all of the, uh, annoying little details of all the, the bullshit that you're going through right now, because I think that is important for people to hear because I think for so many people um, who maybe, I don't know, lost a grandparent when they were kids, but haven't really dealt with death in a a meaningful way in their, in their adult lives or anything. um, It's more of like a concept than a reality and hearing somebody go through it might be able to help um, other people better prepare, um, you know, in whatever little ways they can. So they don't have to deal with, the entire full mountain that is now on the shoulders of you and your family. So, um, you know, I, I just don't want you to feel like, Oh God, I'm going to bring the podcast down again by talking about dealing with lawyers and the funeral home and any of that stuff. Like I, I really want to hear about that stuff. And I, I feel like the more our listeners hear that stuff too, you know, hopefully the more it will be hammered home that, um, that, you know, they, they might be able to, obviously you can't do everything to prepare for something as awful as that, but, um, you know, every little bit helps, I think, just so you can have a little bit of that room to, uh, to grieve and, and go through all of that without necessarily having your, every minute of your free time be filled with, you know, dealing with one crisis after another. So, um, yeah, man, we love you. And, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear this. Yeah, yeah but you'll you'll always have our support. Uh, whether you want to talk about these things, or whether you just need, you know, a shoulder to lean on. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for for sharing everything you've gone through. And yeah, we have your back. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, all right, HT, what have you been up to? Uh, in somewhat lighter news, I uh, celebrated Lunar New Year. Um, and I talked about this last week a little bit in the preparations for it and how I wasn't going to be able to spend it with my family because of COVID-related reasons. And we decided to have sort of a uh, an in-between for that. My family, my cousins who live in New York, we basically decided to do a uh, New Year's potluck uh, in which each of us would uh, cook a dish 
that's typical for Vietnamese New Year uh, called Tet. And um, I made fried spring rolls in my air fryer, which I got for Christmas. Um, I was very excited about my air fryer. I have used it a couple times. I haven't talked about it on the podcast a lot, but um, it's been really handy. Uh, and the, the fried spring rolls were the first time I made something like really fried in it. And uh, it went well. It, it didn't burn. And um, I think it tasted yum, yummy. So uh, that I, I, you know, gave that to my, my cousins and we did like a drop off thing at my cousin's apartment and picked up the various dishes and then all had our, our dinners uh, apart while on, well, we were planning to do a Zoom, but we didn't. So we just, we just took pictures um, and ate it all together. So that was really nice. And then I um, had a call with my, my parents who were having a sort of mini uh, Lunar New Year lunch the next day. So that was nice. Uh, Aisha, I have to follow up with uh, a question that we had last week about this. Did you ever learn any more details about, um, you're talking about like uh, walking in specific cardinal directions or, or certain directions to uh, represent different um, good luck or, or aspects of your life that could be enhanced or something through, uh, you know, during that, that time. Did you ever learn any more details about that? No, uh, <laughs> I just know that it's, it, I don't think like if you don't walk in that direction, it will like bring you bad luck, but it's more of an insurance for good luck. So I did walk in those directions. I took some time off. Um, well, not time off. I like walked away for like 15 minutes to do that very specific walk around the block in very specific directions. And I think, I think I guaranteed myself good luck in, uh, in mon- wealth and, uh, and, um, Love. Hopefully, we'll see. <laughs> I did get a package from uh, uh, Mondo that I don't really know what f- in promotion for, but it was a a dating game. <laughs> and like the day, the same day that I did this this direction, this cardinal Carl- direction walking thing. So I wonder if that was the universe answering me. I don't know. Huh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh, I also like, I also made some dumplings uh, from scratch with uh, my roommate and some friends, uh, just a couple of them, not too many in- indoors, uh, which was another um, sort of wealthy thing. I think that's more common in Chinese New Year because um, we don't really make dumplings a lot with my family, but we, we did that as another sort of added festive uh element to the weekend celebrations. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Uh, so in the what we've been reading uh, column here, I'm the only one who's been reading anything. I read Dreams from My Father, which uh, came out in 1995 and is a memoir by uh, former President Barack Obama. And it, um, like I said, came out in 95. So he, at that point, uh, the point that he published this was just starting his political, uh, political campaign for Senate in, uh, in Illinois. So this is long before he became president. Um, but I thought it was interesting, an interesting insight into, uh, some of the challenges that he had to go through, um, growing up. It, it basically is an entire recounting of every major sort of, uh, event in his life, um, up to that point where, it starts with his upbringing and um, the fact that he didn't really know his his father too well, uh, and it goes through the point where uh, he becomes sort of a, um, a political organizer in uh, Chicago and talks a lot about activism and, and organizing and community outreach and things like that, and then uh, details a lot of his trips back and forth to Africa to try to learn more about, uh, you know, where he comes from and, and learn, meet like extended members of his family and, and learn, you know, who his father was and, and sort of try to 
uh, find out a little bit more about himself in the process. So um, it's a very personal book. Uh, I think the, I, I don't know, I guess I, I think the activism parts and the organize, the organizing parts are so, they, they feel uh, very out of date um, because they happened so long ago that like it was really like uh, sort of a pre-digital world. So I feel like that entire, the entire idea of community outreach has been radically transformed, you know, in the past, whatever, 20, 25 years. Um, so I'm not sure how applicable a lot of the lessons or, or uh, you know, little anecdotes are there to like current people who are looking for tips or anything like that. So um, I, I wouldn't necessarily look at this book through that lens. But uh, if you're just looking for, yeah, sort of a, an early life um uh, recounting from uh, a former president. And I thought it was, you know, pretty decent. So uh, that is called Dreams from My Father, colon, A Story of Race and, and Inheritance. Uh, let's move into what we've been watching. Hey, everyone, this is Ben. Sorry to butt in here and interrupt myself, but I just wanted to drop a spoiler warning for Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, which is the show that we are just getting ready to talk about right now. Chris and I spoil essentially every major reveal of that show over the course of our conversation. So if you want to go into that series uh, not knowing any of those revelations, I would just say skip ahead to the 25 minute and 54 second mark on your podcasting platform. Otherwise, here is our conversation. Chris, you and I watched a Netflix documentary called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel or Cecil Hotel. I think they pronounced it both ways in the documentary. But um, let's let's uh, go to you first. What did you think about this documentary series? Uh, I l- sort of liked it, but like so many docuseries now, it's it's too long. There are too many episodes like this could have been easily whittled down to like three parts or maybe even like one um, for those who don't know, there's uh, it's the story of Eliza lamb. She was um, from Canada. She came to Los Angeles on her own and she checked into the Cecil hotel, which is in, uh, is it like downtown LA? Ben, do you remember? I haven't seen this in a while. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. So, and uh, she didn't realize that downtown LA is kind of like, you know, a little seedy. There's that's where skid row is basically. And the hotel she checked in is for, for lack of a better term, a dump. Uh, and, um, she, she was there for a few days and then she just vanished into thin air basically. And no one could figure out where she was. And, um, the police started investigating and they released this video online. And the video shows her getting into one of the hotels and the hotel, one of the elevators in the hotel. (laughs) And she's acting very strange and erratic. And, uh, that video basically went viral back before anyone really knew what like viral videos were really, you know, they had really taken off as much as they are today. And it, you know, all these theories propped up because if, you know, if you watch the video, and I'm sure you could find it on YouTube even if you don't watch this documentary. It's 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 a creepy video. She's acting erratically. She keeps behaving as if she's talking to someone who isn't there. She uh, she steps you know in and out of the elevator. She pushes a bunch of buttons. It's just a weird video. And that was the last trace anyone had of her. And then a few days later, they found her body in one of the water towers on the roof of the of the hotel. And all these conspiracy theories started uh, cropping up and people were wondering what happened to her. And the eventual conclusion was that um, she died by suicide, um, maybe by accident, maybe on intentional, you know, that those details we don't know, but she had um, documented mental problems. And uh, that was really 
the only real answer anyone could think of. Uh, that didn't stop conspiracy theories, and you know they're still going around today. Uh, and uh, to this documentary's credit, it does get around to, to pointing out, you know, that it's very likely she took her own life. You know, that there wasn't a conspiracy, that there wasn't anything uh, supernatural going on, because that's another theory that people have that you know the hotel is haunted and all that stuff. But it takes a very long time to get there and it keeps going down these different paths. And some of the paths are interesting. You know, it gives you a, a, a background on the Skid Row area. And I thought that was interesting because I didn't really know a whole lot about that. At the same time, it keeps pointing out these red herrings. Like uh, there's like this guy who's like a, a metal artist and he makes his own like music on YouTube and, you know, he paints his face and all his music is dark and about violence. And they spend like an entire episode where they're like, well, this guy stayed at the hotel and he writes songs about killing people. So maybe he killed her. And it's like, get the fuck out of here. You don't need, a, <laughs> you don't need an entire episode devoted to this bullshit red herring. So I really wish they had cut stuff like that out and just focused more on the main story. Um, I, I liked it for the most part, but again, it's just, it's, it's like two or three episodes too long. Yeah. And it's only four episodes. So that length really, I mean, like percentage wise, you really feel it, uh, that, that sort of stretching that happens there. Um, I kind of thought that it was like 30% really good and interesting and 70% garbage. <laughs> like I think the, the 30% is like, you know, they interview people who work there and and people who were actually around at the time of Elisa Lamb's disappearance and like uh, police officers who were working on the case. All of that stuff I found, um, you know, to be like credible and, and uh, uh, informative. And then they interview a ton of just YouTubers and people who are these like online sleuths. And like, I know that, you know, there are some instances of, of people like this uh, who actually help out in in solving real cases that the police either don't want to or, or don't have the resources to solve or whatever. But this is one of those instances where, you know, because of the weirdness of that video, for lack of a better term, so many people on YouTube latched onto that. And all of these, yeah, like you said, conspiracy theories just began to propagate. And I feel like the this documentary's um, almost like glorification of these YouTubers and the way that they glommed onto the case is really disgusting to me. Like there's this one guy who, um, you know, it, it's just so, uh, yeah, really like repulsive it's the in, way that he, it's like very poor taste. Like they, they, <laughs> like they actually have footage of them, like going there and like, we're in the elevator. It's like, right. Dial it down a notch folks. Like, you yeah. Know and, <laughs> and at, uh, at one point near the end, he, um, th this one guy who I feel like is one of the worst, uh, you know, worst members of, of the, that community that is uh, profiled or interviewed in this documentary series. He like, uh, claims that he feels such a connection to Elisa Lamb, even though he's never met her and has only read her like Tumblr posts and has just spent a lot of time making YouTube videos about her that he uh, like sends somebody to her grave in Canada and like gets this person to, you know, film footage of them putting their hand on her on this woman's grave and send it back to this guy. So he can like make his connection to her feel more, profound or something and i'm just like oh my god this is so like disgusting the way that you're that, that you have uh you know turned this this just human woman into like this icon that you're like trying to this like 
you know, content for lack of a better term, you know, like just yeah. fodder for YouTube videos. It's really, uh, yeah, I, I found I, it to be sickening. But. I feel like it's, it's trying to be too many things at once. Cause I, I do feel like if you made a documentary just about, uh, you know, these YouTube sleuths and how they got everything wrong and how they, you know, they clearly don't understand what, like, there's one part where they're like, they're zooming in on the, the elevator footage and they're like, this is someone else's foot and it's clearly just her foot. And it's like, like yeah. you don't need to be like Sherlock Holmes to realize <laughs> that, but they're like convinced they're right. And I feel like that is interesting in theory because, you know, uh, you can draw a direct line between people who are like, look at this haunted elevator footage and people who are like, uh, Joe Biden runs a secret pedophile ring with, you know, right. you can draw a direct line between people like that because that's all over the internet. And I feel like if that's what the documentary was about, that's fine. But that just shoehorns itself into this other story about, you know, this girl who disappeared. And then you have uh, the whole skid row thing. It's like three different documentaries and they all don't work together. Like, right. It needed to just be like make up its mind. And I think, you know, that's, yeah. that's a problem. I think so too. And, and the, the skid rope stuff, I also, I'm glad you enjoyed that part. Cause I found that to be like, yeah, the most sort of fascinating stuff. They have like a, a guy who is, I think like a specifically, I think on the, the Chiron that pops up under his name is like a, uh, I think he's a doctor and he's like a skid row historian or something like he yeah. seems to just only study that area. And I, you know, I lived in LA for 10 years or something and I didn't really know that much about skid row. Um, you know, even being so close in proximity to it. So I learned more from, about Skid Row in this documentary than I did like living there. So um, yeah, there, there's definitely some good stuff in here. I just found a lot of it to be really kind of cringy and like the way that it, especially the YouTubers were sort of like put up on the same pedestal as like the police and people actually doing real investigative work. Um, I just found to be, yeah, like you mentioned in, in poor taste. So um, that is crime scene colon the vanishing at the Cecil hotel, which you can watch on Netflix right now. If you it's want worth, to. it's worth pointing out that this is supposed to be the first in a series. Like every season is going to deal with a different infamous crime scene. And I really hope they get their shit together for yeah. whatever they're doing next. Cause if it's, if the next season is going to be as like, unfocused as this. I don't know if I'm going to stick with it because I, I love the idea and I, you know, and I do think this story, you know, the story of the, this girl who came here and disappeared is an interesting story, but you gotta, you gotta make it interesting to watch. You know, you can't yeah. just, you know, focus on lunatics on YouTube. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. God. I mean, that guy, that poor musician, that death metal musician you mentioned, like they, that's the saddest part of the whole thing. They, they go back to him near the end and he's just talking about how his life was completely ruined by all these people making false claims against him. And none of them like ever reached out, of course, to apologize or say anything when he was, you know, when his, his name was cleared and, and the truth was actually discovered. Um, so the, the movie, I think, or the, the docu-series, like that is kind of the series uh, turning, you know, like throwing shade on these YouTubers, but it also devotes so much time to them and their opinions that I, I found it to be just, yeah, a little muddled in that regard. So, yeah. Um, all right. Anyway, that is Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Uh, let's see. What else? Um, Brad, you and I watched Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which is the new movie starring uh, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig. What did you think about Barb and Star? Uh, yeah, so this was the first movie that I really uh, took the time to sit down and watch uh, since everything happened. Just needed a little bit of levity, and uh, I was I initially had a screener for this uh, in advance, and I just didn't get a chance to watch it for obvious reasons. But uh, I took the time to rent it because I saw people whose comedic tastes usually align with mine uh, raving about how funny it was, and 
man, this was such a great uh, escape from all the, the the shitty stuff that's been happening lately because this movie is nonsensically absurd and ridiculous and just so funny. Um, it's it's there's this great original comedy that has like flares of Austin Powers and Hot Rod and Roman Michelle's High School Reunion, um, where Kristen Wiig and Annie Mueller are just these two midwestern women who are just quirky and odd um kind of in a napoleon dynamite dynamite way but with a little bit more of like a snl comedic style and yeah it's just this was just so much fun and like totally random bits that you know where it borders on being a spoof because it's so silly um but it's not not quite you know a straight up like a genre parody or anything like that um, we talked about this yesterday on the mailbag. I was so surprised by how fun Jamie Dornan is in this movie. He's clearly having a blast doing something completely different. Um, it was just, yeah, I, I, I can't say enough kind things about just what, what a nice surprise this movie was. Um, I, I really wish, you know, this was a time when movie theaters were open. Cause I feel like it's the kind of movie that could really generate some word of mouth buzz and, uh, drive up some interest and get people back into theaters. But, uh, I hope that it's finding a good size audience on, on VOD since it makes it accessible for, for everybody. And yeah, I just, I, I thought it was great. What did you think? Uh, I loved it. Like unexpectedly, I, I know that Chris was raving about it last week or at least uh, praising it last week. And um, <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of went in not really knowing anything about the, the details, like the plot details, other than just it's these two sort of like, goofy Midwestern, you know, 40-ish uh, year old women who go on vacation to Florida. And I feel like that's the best way to go into it. Like, I don't want to give away anything about the the mechanics of this movie or like what what is, uh, you know, sort of like bubbling around the edges a little bit um, because the, the randomness of it is really what, uh, what sort of caught me off guard and made me like it as much as I do, I think. But um, yeah, the, the comedic performances are all great. It really feels like a movie that they don't make very much anymore. Um, maybe if at all, like yeah. this, this is a throwback to a different type of comedy style. I mean, I think you just said, and, and I think Chris mentioned last week, Austin Powers, and it really kind of, that's like the most um, <laughs> like relevant uh, connective tissue point that I, that I can draw. That, um, and I, I said this last time or whenever I talked about this, but I really, this really reminds me of like the early Muppet movies. I would love yeah, that's if right. they just handed the Muppets over to Kristen Wiig and Andy. Andy oh Moore, gosh, that's, that's a great idea, Chris, man. I would love to see that. Yeah. Cause like, this is exactly that. T- and I, I, again, I really, I said this before, but I, I really think it's deliberate because they even have like a blatant reference to the first Muppet movie in this yeah. movie. So I kind of yeah. feel like they were like, these two women got high one night and were like laughing at Muppet movies and were like, let's make our own fun of that, but without Muppets. Yeah. And it's this weird mixture of like, um, like wholesome, but like, you know, there's like sex stuff that happens, but it's never explicit. So it kind of feels a little bit more family friendly, like kind of in the, like a, like a little bit more of an edgy kind of Muppet adjacent property. You know, it's not like a full blown, uh, hard R rated movie or anything. But, um, so yeah, I think, I think tonally it, it sort of fits in there as well. Um, but man, yeah, like there, there are so many, like, so like laugh out loud, funny moments in this movie in a way that I have not experienced in like a, a mainstream comedy in, in a little while. So, uh, it definitely it's one of those films that if you want, if you need a good laugh, this is something to put on because, 
there are so many jokes in it that even if some of them don't work, I think the the um, the chances that some of them do um, are really high. And uh, like Damon Wayans Jr., I won't say anything about his character, but he was like one of the the uh, I don't know six like a. I guess an MVP off the bench kind of character for me. He just, he stole every scene he was in. Um, and I, I loved that the entire construction of that character and what he, what he represented. So, uh, yeah, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar is available on VOD right now. Um, Brad, did you have any closing thoughts about, about the movie? Anything else that you wanted to say? No, just, I mean, yeah, just, just go watch it. It's just, it's a bright spot right now. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a while since, uh, there's been a comedy like this. So it's, it's worth seeking out. And it might seem weird in the first 10 minutes. You'll be like, what the fuck is going on? But just, just stick with it. And like, I, I promise there'll be things that, that you like in it. Yeah. Um, okay. HT, you and I watched To All the Boys, Always and Forever, which is the third and final movie in Netflix's uh, To All the Boys I Loved Before uh, teen rom-com trilogy. What did you think about this third entry? I thought it was sweet. I thought it was a vast improvement over the second film, which I was. It felt like that the second film, To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You, uh, was definitely a film that was like trying to insert conflict and running on fumes and while this while this film does it doesn't hold a candle to the charm and just surprising um delight that was the first movie it was really sweet um so this is the um the third and final film of the to all the boys uh, series uh based on jenny han's novels and it follows uh the, not Lana Condor's character, <laughs> Lara Jean Covey, <laughs> and yes. Peter Kavinsky, as they are uh, preparing to both head to Princeton together. Uh, Peter on a scholarship for lacrosse. Stanford. Stanford. I I remember things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I watched this. Uh, yeah, Friday. It was a sweet movie. I. I but yeah, they uh, prepared to head to Stanford together. Um, but Lana and uh, Lana, Lara Jean, Lara Jean falls in love with New York. University, NYU, and uh, she decides to pursue her own dreams there uh, at the cost of their, but they're still budding relationship. And I think it's, um, yeah, I can't really say anything other than it's sweet. I do think that um, it does well at sort of trying to embrace that coming of age genre, that that sort of like turning point in a lot of uh, child, like teenagers' lives is that mm-hmm. leaving of high school and entering graduation. Um, but yeah, I think I, I just uh, I there's a montage at the end that basically is just the entire uh, alludes to all the, the sweet scenes from the first film. And I was like, wow, the first film was so good. And it just kind of made me think of how good that that first movie is and how the third movie is is sweet but not as as uh, delightful as that first movie. Yeah, I like this one a lot too. I think the um, the lead actors Lana Condor and Noah Centineo are just like super charming, and um, I agree wholeheartedly that this is like miles above the second film, which I thought just really almost nosedived the the franchise because of the way that it sort of uh, forced that conflict and just really felt like okay, we know where this is going. We know that there's an inevitability to how this is going to end. And this entire second movie just feels like a big distraction, like a big, um, you know, uh, bump in the road that needs to be overcome instead of like an enjoyable viewing experience. And this movie is just like a purely enjoyable viewing experience pretty much all the way through. Um, I think the, uh, like, HD, what do you think about this movie's uh, depiction of New York City? It's like, because I kind of found it to be, 
like maybe the um the cleanest like nicest sort of uh you know, it's very much in that like rom-com uh, mold where like there's absolutely no downside to living in New York. Oh, it's yeah. like a flawless place. It's super idealized. There's like they there's a scene where they uh, she and a bunch of other girls that she met at this rooftop party in Lower East Side, which is not something that a college kid would get invited to. I haven't been to a rooftop party in Lower East Side. What are you talking about to all the boys? <laughs> um, she and a group of the girls just like take a couch um into the the subway and uh they have like this moment where they're all sitting on the couch and laughing and she's like wow new york city is where i need to be and it's just it's it's super cheesy um and feels very much like a pastiche of every other like new york city rom-com where new york is the character whatever um Mm -hmm. so (laughs) i think that was a little bit uh like creatively lazy uh where they much just basically leaned on yeah new york is great course that she loves it um but and at the same time that's the only kind of scene where you really see new york and um why she's drawn to it and, and doesn't really it kind of acts as a shorthand for like who lara jean is like who does she want to be you don't really know mm-hmm. except for she loves new york and the movie doesn't really try to make up for her like lacking any kind of personal identity and ambition, but I guess New York is that identity now. But there have mm-hmm. been many movies talking about how people form identities around New York anyway. So I guess that's a fine shorthand, but um, to me it felt like they're just trying to use that uh, as a as an out, so almost almost like a way of inserting more conflict, but it it makes it, it worked for me enough. Um, even though, what's her name, Genevieve was just... <laughs> was also part of the impetus for her to move to New York, but she was just was kind of there to not be a character, but a, um, like, a, a device that makes random snarky comments every now and then. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, I think my, my theory about that scene that you mentioned about the couch on the subway is that they just needed an image to, uh, to pop up when you hover over the... <laughs> the tab on or the tile on Netflix, they needed like some quirky image uh, that looks like a, an album cover or something. So like that was the entire purpose of that scene because yeah, like totally there's nobody else cover. on the sub. Yeah. There's nobody else on the subway when they load this like hot pink couch into it. And um, they're all just like lounging on it. Like, Oh wow. Isn't New York great. Um, but yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point. Like the, the idea of her, um, you know, it representing like her for the first two movies anyway, it seems like the, one of the defining characteristics of this character is just like her uh, love and, and um, relationship with this, uh, with her boyfriend, Peter. And this movie I think is like a little bit more mature than the first two films, because it's more about like her coming to terms with what she wants and, and um, learning to uh, not have her entire life be defined by that relationship and just having that relationship be, you know, a, a supporting component um, and and like one of many things about her instead of like the only thing about her. So um, I appreciate it on that level too. So yeah, to all the boys, uh, always and forever, a cute movie, sweet movie, um, definitely a, a worthy uh, entry in this franchise, much, much better than the second film. So you can watch that on Netflix right now if you like. And then the last thing that I watched was uh, Judah, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Sorry, uh, that movie just came out on uh, HBO Max. Um, I think it was this past Friday and uh, Shaka King directs this. It stars uh, Lakeith Stanfield as uh, William O'Neill, who was uh, an FBI informant who infiltrated the uh, Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s in Chicago. And uh, Daniel Kaluuya plays uh, Fred Hampton and who was like the, uh, the chairman of the party. 
and it's basically like a, a crime saga story about like a departed esque story about like this, yeah, infiltration and and sort of um, you know trying to uh, to bring down this this guy who is like uh, like uh, espousing all of these ideas about socialism and and these sort of like anti capitalist uh, messages that um, sound very very familiar in uh, you know to our, our modern uh, political discourse. Um, but this was happening in the late sixties and it, it's all about how the freaking FBI, man, they're just like the worst sometimes because they, they, uh, I don't want to give away what happens to this. You know, it's like a spoilers for real life scenario, but I just found this movie to be like really, really top tier on almost every level. It just feels like a real movie in the way that a lot of stuff that I've been watching at home over the past year doesn't um you know a lot of the sort of made for streaming stuff just feels like it's it's it never quite shifts into that full you know proper movie gear um where all of the elements come together the acting the performance or yeah the the performances the cinematography everything just like feels um you know big and larger than life and like super super cinematic and this movie uh checks all those boxes for me and Man, uh, Lakeith Stanfield and uh, Daniel Kaluuya are just like unreal in this movie. So um, I would highly recommend checking this out. It's going to be on HBO Max for, I think, 30 days or something, whatever their their deal is with Warner Brothers. The first 30 days, it'll be uh, available for quote unquote free on HBO Max. So uh, if you subscribe to that service, um, then you can just watch it right now. It's also in some theaters. I don't know what the deal is with that. Uh, I would not say to go out and see this movie or any movie in theaters right now. But um, yeah, and it, it's very good. And I'm curious if you guys get a chance to watch it, uh, what you all think. I have not uh, had a chance to really read about it as much uh, as I've wanted to. I haven't read any reviews or anything, but one of the points that I've seen raised on this uh, on Twitter about this film is that it might've been a little bit more effective to have um, to cast uh, slightly younger actors. Um, Kaluuya and uh, Sandfield are not, like old people by any stretch of the imagination, but um, Fred Hampton and William O'Neill were actually way younger uh, in real life than either of these two actors. I think Fred Hampton was only like 21 years old when, um, you know, during the events of this movie. So uh, I think the idea of that I've seen put forth on Twitter is like, uh, you know, it, it kind of does a disservice to those people by um, having them be portrayed by people who are older and seem a little bit more, uh, you know, self-assured and all of that. And like there, there might've been some value in having uh, younger people um, have that sort of charisma and like incredible um, uh, speaking persona and just like ability to uh, hold an audience wrapped, you know, in, in the middle of, uh, in the palm of their hand. Um, and somebody who's going through, you know, such a, an intense conflict like this uh, William O'Neill character. Um just, yeah, you know, by having them be actors who were 21 or something instead of like in their mid thirties or whatever, um, might, might have been, uh, I don't know, more illustrative or something like that. So anyway, I, I look forward to circumstances reading. even more tragic too, because, or the as they were in real life, because just seeing men so young, uh, basically be used as, as puppets and pawns in this elaborate yeah. scheme by the U.S. government and that and this war that they're waging, uh, it would just be, feel even more tragic and, and real. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. But on reviews, you should read Chris's review on Slashville. Yeah, I still need to do that. I have it bookmarked, but I haven't read it yet. But um, You can skip it. It's not one of my best reviews. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I'll definitely be reading it. So uh, Shaka King, man, that, that's one of my big takeaways from this is like, I have not seen any of the other stuff that he's done. I think he just directed like one pretty small indie movie, you know, many years ago. Um, but this sort of announces him as like a filmmaker that I need to pay attention to going forward. And I, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what he does next. So uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is streaming on HBO Max right now, and it is very, very good. So uh let's see who is next brad what else have you been watching i uh finished season five of friends recently continuing my way through the series um gotta tell you as time is going on uh getting pretty annoyed with all this ross and rachel business um you know they're just uh the the relationship just uh it's crumbling, you know, and I know. So, yeah, what, what's the status in season five, like where you are right now? What's what's happened in the very recent past and where are they right now? So, yeah. So um, beginning, they were dealing with Ross uh, having trouble with his marriage to this British woman named Emily. And so then that um, crumbled and they got uh, divorced and everything. And so then they were both Ross and Rachel were single and dating other people for a while. But then now at the end of this season, uh, they all went to Vegas to see Joey because he was supposed to be shooting this indie movie. And Ross and Rachel ended up getting hammered and uh, surprisingly getting married at a Las Vegas like quick chapel um, when it looked like it was going to be Monica and Chandler doing a, a much more romantic and cute quick uh, wedding in Las Vegas. But instead, they stumbled upon Ross and Rachel doing it. And so they just ruin, you know, what I'm liking now more is, is uh, Monica and Chandler's relationship than Ross and Rachel. And so now I'm going to see what happens at the beginning of season six. And so I will say I, I do like the the trend that um, what they keep doing with these season finales where it's a two part episode. It, they, they all end up in a completely different location and then it carries over to the beginning of, of the next season um, with some kind of big changing event. Um, this one kind of frustrating, obviously, because it's like, OK, cool. So they're being irresponsible and stupid again. Um, but, yeah, I, you know. It's it's still fun to watch, you know. Um, I like I, I think I said before, you know, I I think Chandler is probably my favorite character. I'm I'm enjoying Joey and Phoebe very much too for the uh, the goofiness that they bring to the equation. And my my favorite things, you know, still comes from just seeing um, different like stars who were on on the show when they were still kind of up and coming in their career. Um, in the season finale this time, Thomas Lennon appears as this uh, blackjack dealer who. Joey gets obsessed with because he says he's his hand twin, which is very exciting to him for some reason. Um, and then it, I was surprised to see, um, I wouldn't have known who this was uh, if I didn't know that there was a Punky Brewster reboot coming to Peacock this year. But Salil Moon Fry had a small role as someone who dated Joey briefly, who kept like jokingly punching him and started hurting him. And so he didn't really like that. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, Phoebe had triplets this year that she gave to her, her brother and um, his older girlfriend played by Deborah Joe Rupp. Uh, Bob Balaban showed up as uh, Phoebe's father um, surprisingly. And so there's just cool, fun stuff like that uh, here and there that I, that I really enjoy. And so the, the show's still fun as frustrated as I'm, I'm getting with uh, the Ross and Rachel of it all. How many seasons of friends were there, Brad? There's 10. Oh, wow. So you're only at the halfway point yeah, then. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Uh, man, well, best of luck in the back half there. For sure. <laughs> uh, okay, HC, what else have you been watching? 
Uh, I have uh, been watching the Brandy Cinderella, uh, more commonly known as Rogers and Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella. I actually, when I watched this when I was young, I didn't realize it was a Rogers and Hammerstein um, musical, and I found that I'm on a surprising Rogers and Hammerstein streak, having watched Sound of Music last week, and now uh, the Brandy Cinderella. And I call this that because this is the latest, the, not the latest, the third remake of the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein TV musical. Uh, for Cinderella, the first of which starred Ju- a young Julie Andrews, I think in 1965. And then there was another one in the 70s? No, she was in the 40s one. I can't, I don't know the dates for this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, um, sh- the uh, um, Brandy Cinderella <laughs> is, a, is a really, really fun, like nostalgic uh, trip for me. This is the first time it's available on streaming ever. And I hadn't seen it since I was a, a kid. And uh, I just really enjoyed watching it again and ha- was surprised that I remembered all the songs, uh, which are all still great, uh, by the way, and even more uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein like flavored than I had even thought that they would be. They, the, I guess it's just my having watched Sound of Music and this back to back. I'm like, wow, they do sound, they do sound very similar. Um, but uh I had forgotten how much this film looked like it was made by someone who had just seen color for the first time because it is gaudy, it is garish, but it's so, so fun and obnoxious in a way that I think toes the line, but keeps it uh, really just uh, memorable and, and, uh, delightful in that way uh probably because the um the cast performances especially by supporting characters like uh Bernadette Peters and Jason Alexander are so big and outsized and loud that it matches the color and the production design uh Whitney Houston of course uh is perfect as the fairy godmother Brandy is really lovely uh although whenever she she sings that uh, the duet with with Whitney Houston, uh, impossible. She does get, kind of get, almost get drowned out a little bit. Whitney's holding back quite a bit in that duet, but um, it's a lot of fun, and I, I always, I really enjoyed watching it again and just seeing that multicultural, diverse cast that they had uh, without any explanation. I always love that they have like an Asian prince played by a Filipino actor. Um, I remember his last name is Maltaban. I can't remember his first name. I'm not I'm very unprepared for this. <laughs> um, uh, I have an Asian prince whose parents are Whoopi Goldberg and uh, uh, Vincent Garber. Victor Garber. Victor Garber. Yes, Victor Garber. Um, so yeah, it's always that was always really amusing to me. And um, yeah, a fun time. Very cheesy. Uh, definitely is very short and feels like a made-for-TV musical, but in a way that the rose-colored glasses I have for it uh, still. Um, remain intact so that's rogers and hammerstein's cinderella is that on disney plus it is on disney plus okay cool and then you've been watching one other thing right yes i watched framing britney spears which is the new york times hulu documentary about uh britney spears and um her very turbulent life in the spotlight and the conservative conservatorship that she is still under and uh, the free Britney movement that has been taking place uh, in the past couple of years to attempt to free her from this conservatorship, which puts her under the financial and uh, personal control of her father, Jamie Spears. And I had heard a lot of the discourse around this, this documentary beforehand, which had piqued my interest in, um, in, in watching it. Uh, a lot of, 
like blowback from the uh, the documentary in like celebrities and various media personalities apologizing for their treatment of Britney Spears and kind of the whole like internet a whole culture kind of uh, coming to terms with how terribly they treated her and how vulturistic the the very misogynistic media like had uh, basically torn her apart and um, treated her as as fodder for their own amusement. And seeing all this discourse, I'd kind of expected the the documentary to be more about that. And while it was, it dedicated a good like half of the film to to act to like her treatment under the media and where she came from and how this all kind of came to be um, and how she came under the conservative conservatorship. It also dedicated a lot more airtime to the free Britney movement than I had thought it to be. And I think this is because this is a New York Times documentary feature. It's actually only about an hour, 10 minutes long, and it's part of a, a like a feature storytelling series uh, from New York Times. It's not a standalone film, but part of like a, a longer like docu-series um, from New York Times under Hulu. So I, I guess that makes, that kind of makes sense in that New York Times, of course, would um, hone in on a a very timely, a more timely topic to sort of go back into a more in depth uh, investigation, to, like an in depth analysis of everything. But um, they, yeah, they dedicate like way more time to the Free Britney movement, basically just giving all of this airtime to this uh, Britney Spears podcast that basically like analyzes her Instagram feed and were kind of the spearheaders of the Free Britney movement after they had noticed that she like disappeared for a couple months um, and checked into a, uh, a rehab facility and they were they basically uh, theorized that they sh- that she didn't do this of her own free will and started the Free Britney movement out of that and it, it gave a lot of free, like airtime to the two girls who run that podcast as well as the many activists who are part of the Free Britney movement and what kind of impact they made on her uh, while I was much more interested in just like the more deep analysis uh, of that the media culture and how how Britney was treated and it felt like um like that was much more interesting and I had like people who were close to Britney as well as various like media personalities even some paparazzi speak speak about it and that was just really fascinating but it felt like there was one voice that was sorely missing which was Britney's own voice and we hear we see some archival footage and we hear interviews of her talking about how like her own um sort of agency and what and speaking a little bit about the conservatorship under a different documentary but she's she's conspicuously absent in this and the New York Times does say at the end that they tried to reach out to her but they don't even know if those requests reached her so it's a it's a it's a good documentary it's like fascinating but I do think that it the whole subject deserves a much longer and much more thorough uh look um like Britney Spears for sure is um one of the only one of the many uh victims of that kind of um vulturistic and misogynistic mm-hmm. media culture that arose in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, I think that we could definitely see, um, it, we could afford to see another documentary that goes much more into much more insight into that. 
Yeah, and I think you wrote an article um, for Slash Film either yesterday or the day before that that said that uh, Netflix is developing their own Britney Spears documentary with uh, the director Aaron Lee Carr, who made uh, Mommy Dead and Dearest, which is a documentary about um, the uh, Gypsy Blanchard case, which was then adapted into that Hulu show, The Act. Um, so people might be familiar with that story. Um, so yeah, hopefully uh, Aaron Lee Carr's Britney Spears documentary will sort of fill in those gaps and give you what you're looking for, what you're sort of hoping that this would be, you know, more um, fully uh, focused on. So, um, okay, let's see. What else do we have? Uh, what we've been eating, Brad, what have you been eating recently? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm still on my bullshit when it comes to trying <laughs> trying these things because it helps. Um, and so I, uh, I recently stumbled upon uh, Ultimate Cheddar Doritos, which aren't, aren't remarkably different from nacho cheese Doritos, but like nacho cheese Doritos don't really taste like nacho cheese. They just taste like cheese chips with like a little bit of a kick to it. Not even to the point where they're spicy, but they just, they have like a, a, a spice to them, I guess you could say. Um, and so these are, are essentially, I guess what you would say a more mild version of them where they're just basically, you know, cheddar Doritos where the, the cheese flavor uh, is a little bit different. So I don't think that they're quite as good as like uh, nacho cheese Doritos, but uh, they're not bad for being, you know, a different kind of uh, cheesy Dorito for anyone who is, I guess, insane enough not to like nacho cheese Doritos. <laughs> um, and so then uh, so a couple of my friends um, sent uh, a care package uh, to me and, and my girlfriend with some stuff in it just to kind of, you know, help lessen the, the blow and whatnot. And they included some uh, chips that um, you can, apparently you can they only get them in Mexico. They're um, exclusive over there. And so there's these uh, chili limon Fritos. And normally I don't go out of my way to get stuff that has um, like the lime flavor or, or even the chili flavor. Cause usually here it's, it's like the flame and hot with lime and stuff like that. And that's just not my thing. Uh, but these are actually um, surprisingly good. The, the lime flavor is subtle. The chili isn't spicy and the, um, the Fritos formula, if you will, seems like it's a little different from American Fritos. I'm not necessarily sure what the, the reason for that is, but they taste a little bit, um, I guess, more airy uh they're not quite as 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 dense as uh fritos corn chips that we have here so, but the flavor is good uh and then they also sent me these uh queso and chili crujitos which are basically like um the the, the shape and like texture and whatnot of taco bell cinnamon twists but instead of being cinnamon it's queso and chili flavored and so um it's I guess what you would say, like a, like a dry, like nacho cheese dip kind of flavor um, that it, on this like crunchy, you know, crisp, crisp twist thing. Uh, and those, those were also pretty good. Uh, uh, Brad, I just realized all, all this talk about uh, chili flavored stuff. I also have something to contribute to this category for the first time in a very, very long time. Nice. Uh, I had, I tried the um, uh, limited time flavor Lay's game day chili chips have you ever had oh actually you just reminded me actually that i I have tried those as well yeah what did you think of those i liked them i i it was one of those just complete impulse purchases i never really do this but i just saw it on the shelf and it said limited time maybe there was something about that where i was like i guess i guess i gotta you know if i'm gonna try this it's now or never kind of thing (laughs) i have no idea how often that actually comes back around if it really is limited or what but um i was just like i'm gonna give this a shot and i ended up liking them a lot so uh it's it's a little bit weird in to have a potato chip taste really kind of a lot like 
uh, a bowl of chili, but um, I, I, for some reason it worked for me. So. Yeah, no, they definitely nailed the flavor to the point where it's it's not just the chili flavor, but like you, you get a hint of the cheese and even the sour cream. Um, so yeah, those I, I like those too, and they're even good. Yeah, uh, you know, dipping them, you know, in a cheese dip as well. So. Mm. um on this this is the same crispy kind of route uh so this year is um like the 50th anniversary of kogo pebbles and fruity pebbles so like post is doing like a bunch of new stuff like tied to both cereals where they're releasing them in different forms essentially like there's coffee creamers out there and uh one of the things that i um just finally got my, my hands on are they're they're releasing both fruity pebbles and cocoa pebbles as crisps um and so Initially, I thought that these were just going, it was just going to be like the cereal that they had shaped into like a crisp form and would essentially taste just like the cereal. And it's not quite that because they're, they're crispy rice snacks that are essentially flavored like Cocoa Pebbles and Fruity Pebbles. And so there's the aftertaste, you're like, oh, okay, so these are flavored rice cakes that are just smaller and thinner. And so the Cocoa Pebbles ones are fine. Um, the chocolate flavor doesn't last uh very long once you you're actually you know eating the crisps and then it starts to taste more like the rice cakes uh the fruity pebbles the flavor is stronger and it doesn't feel like it dissipates into just tasting like a a rice snack so i think the fruity pebbles ones um are are better and so i it's it's so weird to to say because like i I guess i just wish that it would have just been the cereal in like a crisp form and sure i can just go get a handful of cocoa pebbles or fruity pebbles (laughs) if i want to but i guess it's just the convenience of having like oh this is a cereal chip essentially you know um, but they're they're fun and so like they're I think those are available at uh, various um, grocery stores and they're they're gluten free if that's something that you care about that you try to uh, avoid so you can try them and not worry about exploding or whatever gluten does to people like that. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I tried is uh, Coca Cola hasn't um, released a a new version of it's Coca Cola with coffee uh, and so the only one I've tried so far is the regular one but there's three different flavors there's the regular there's uh, vanilla and there's caramel and there was a time years ago i want to say when i was in college maybe that they released coca-cola black which was coca-cola with coffee and um the formula for this one seems like it's a little bit different i remember the coffee flavor in coca-cola black being stronger and it's still definitely present here but it's it's feels like it's um a little more subtle maybe uh and so if, if you're someone who you know likes coffee and coke it's i think it's worth it to try uh, I'm not sure if it's like a re- you know necessarily a replacement for having your coffee in the morning or, or anything like that, um, but I, I do have the caramel and the vanilla ones, but I haven't tried them yet, so I'll, I'll definitely let you guys know how those are once I do. Cool. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. This podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on uh, Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag prompts to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps us out a ton. Tell your friends, spread the word. Uh, Jacob is not here, so we're not going to be doing the joke book today. I know everybody's probably heartbroken about that. I apologize. Uh, But yes, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.